open to Daniel, the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6, and uh, just like Jamie mentioned, it, what we're, the story we find here in Daniel 6 is not just probably the most uh, well-known story in, in Daniel, but the Old Testament like as a whole, and, and the Bible as a whole. It, it always seems like if, if only a select few of uh, Stories are highlighted from the Old Testament. This one always seems to make the list. If there's like a children's Bible that it's going to have not all the stories, but some of the stories in the Old Testament, Daniel and Lion's Den will be in that in one of those stories that were taught to kids. And like, I, I bet if you played like a, a a word association game, like if I mention somebody from the Bible and you mention the first thing that pops in your head, if you mention Daniel, somebody's going to say Lion's Den. It's just it's that uh, that well known of a story, but it's a it's well known for a reason because it's it's an amazing story. Uh, it's it it really is, and it and it has so much to teach us. In fact, uh, what we're gonna think about this morning, I hope, is the most prominent things that that this passage has to teach us. But that but that, there's so much more here as as it has been in every other chapter. We're taking a whole chapter at a time. So chapter one, two, three, four, and five were the same way. That we're we're just scratching the surface. There's more here than we're ever going to be able to, to bring out of it. So I hope each week as we leave, you, you continue to think about these uh, passages because there's, there's a lot here. But let's read the chapter, and then we'll, we'll uh, look at it more closely just to give you a bearing of where we're going. Um, we're going to think about this chapter from the vantage point of opposition and obedience. Opposition and obedience. Uh, so Daniel chapter 6, we'll read the whole chapter. Beginning in verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them, three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps, because there was an excellent spirit in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. No error or fault was found in him. And then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps and the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. 
When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, This thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persian, Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king established can be changed. And the king commanded. Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out, in a tone of anguish, the king declared to Daniel, O oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, has he been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O oh, king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him and also before you. O king, I have, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their, all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all, all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. 
He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. That chapter kind of ends like chapter 4 did with Nebuchadnezzar giving praise to God. Let's pray. Father, um, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, clear, and necessary, and holy word. Um, And we are your people. And I pray that you would give us eyes to see the truth that is in these words that we just read. And you would give us ears to hear spiritual truth. Give us minds to understand what is written here. Give us hearts to embrace the truth that is told here. Give us wills to act in obedience and follow more faithfully after Christ as a result. Give me the help that I desperately need to teach and to teach it faithfully, truly, and passionately. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so here we are, sixth chapter, and um, I don't know, just thinking back, I don't know if, if we've come across a, a chapter yet <laughs> in which Daniel, who was a servant in the, in the palace of the, the king of the Babylonians and then the, now the Persian kings, he didn't find himself in some type of controversy or trial. That's the, sort of the build-up to what we're going to see today. I mean, over and over again in Daniel, from the very beginning, the, the constant the, the drum, the theme that is a drumbeat in each chapter is sort of the backdrop is the, the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of, kingdoms of the world. Um, I mean, just think back for a second what we found in each chapter. The book started out in chapter 1 where Daniel was really young, like a young teenager, like preteen, like young guy, young kid in the, in the palace of, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, he and his uh, other, his friends and his countrymen had been overtaken in Judah by the Babylonians, had been carried off into captivity. Daniel and, and his friends find themselves working in the, in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and immediately they're confronted with opposition to all that they'd ever been taught concerning God and his kingdom and, it, and his lordship. And the, 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 the climax of that is them refusing to eat the food that was provided to them in the palace. Why? Well, not because the Old Testament law had forbidden them from eating that food, but it seems to be that they refused to eat that food because they did not want to be dependent upon anybody else but God alone for their well-being. So they chose to eat things that God alone provides, vegetables that grow out of the ground, and water. Right, and God will sustain me. Immediately, even at a young age, they felt the tension between God and, and, and His kingdom, of whom they were a part, and the kingdom, the earthly kingdom they found themselves in. That was chapter 1. And then chapter 2, it was, it was about a, a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. It was a terrifying dream, and, and the bottom line was only Daniel was able to tell Nebuchadnezzar what that dream was and what the meaning of that dream was. Um, But what was the whole point of the dream? The whole point of the dream was God telling Nebuchadnezzar 
through a dream that God, God's kingdom was the only kingdom that would last forever. That God was the only one that anyone should serve and live for, right? And that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom would pass away, that only God's kingdom would remain. Again, a whole chapter revolved around a dream that the whole point of it was God's kingdom versus the kingdoms of this world. Well, then you come to chapter 3. And, Daniel, and it shifts away from Daniel to Daniel's three friends, Hananiah, Azariah, and uh, Mishael, renamed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And what was the highlight there? Nebuchadnezzar had built a 90-foot-tall golden statue, told all the people to bow down to it and to worship it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that was wrong, so they refused to do it. What happened as a result? They were thrown into the fiery furnace, but they came out unharmed by the miraculous power of God. But that whole episode, that whole episode was a collision between the kingdom of God and and the kingdoms of this world, between the worship of God alone and the worship of earthly things. Just writ in a very elaborate story that actually happened. And chapter 4 comes back to Nebuchadnezzar. And, and God, what that revolves around is basically God bringing Nebuchadnezzar to a place where he finally recognized the truth of that dream back in chapter 2. Uh, in fact, he had to make Nebuchadnezzar go crazy for a time and then bring him out of that lunacy to see clearly, finally, that, that God alone is God. As vast as my earthly kingdom is, my his dominion is an everlasting dominion. That's what he says at the end of chapter 4, right? And, 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 and there is no kingdom of this world that will last forever, that God alone is, is worthy and deserves to be and should be praised. That's how Nebuchadnezzar dies, according to Daniel. And then you came to, we came to chapter 5 last week, and this is the, the, the whimpering end of the, the Babylonian kingdom under their last king, Belshazzar. And I don't know how much time took place between chapter 4 and chapter 5, but however much time that was, the reality is Belshazzar had already forgotten the lessons that God had taught to Nebuchadnezzar the hard way, right? And, uh, and they were long, long forgotten, and the, the, the pride of life, the, the pride in earthly kingdoms was back in, in, in full force. And what happened in chapter 5 is God finally dealt his his judgment out on the Babylonians, and all their glory came to an end just like that. Um, handwriting on a wall and all that kind of stuff. Overtaken by another kingdom, the Medes and the Persians. The, the kingdoms of the, of the world and their priorities and their desires and their aims are always, always at odds and in conflict with the kingdom of God and, and, his, and his people and his truth. We've seen it all throughout Daniel, which we just saw. We're going to see it here again in chapter 6. We see it everywhere in the Bible, climactically in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But it's not contained to the Bible. It's still the reality today. The reason it's such a theme in the Bible is because it's a theme of the world. It's a theme of the world we live in. I mean... It's, it's, it's true in the days of Daniel. It's true in the days of the New Testament. It's true in our own culture. It's true in our own country. I mean, there are two primary political parties in our 
in our country, Republican and Democrat, and they each have their own agendas, and neither one of them are the agenda of the kingdom of God. Neither one of them. Both parties have some good things. Both parties have some bad things. And neither one of them line up with Jesus Christ. Right? We see no matter who, who has an administration in our country, there are laws and there are policies that are constantly against and inherently opposed to, the, to what Scripture says. That's a reality of this country and any country in this world you're going to live in. Because the kingdoms of this world are always opposed to the kingdom of God, and it's true. We're no better or different than, than, than all the kingdoms that have come before us. 1,500 years ago, more or less. Here's what Augustine said of the Roman Empire, okay? Here's what he said. He could, be, he could have been talking about us, but here's what he said. In the streets, again, in the Roman Empire, in the streets, the incessant clamor of indecent impiety rings. Full publicity is given where shame would be appropriate. Close secrecy is imposed where praise would be in order. Decency is veiled from sight. Indecency is exposed to view. Scenes of evil attract Packed audiences. Good words scarcely find any listeners. It is as if purity should provoke a blush and corruption give ground for pride. That was life in the Roman Empire 1,500 years ago. And that's life today in our own country. And it's going to continue to be the case everywhere, anywhere in the world until Jesus returns. And I think what we find here in Daniel 6 is incredibly helpful in this way. Because knowing that's the reality then and now and in the future, knowing that that's the reality, what, where I think Daniel 6 is helpful to us is that it, 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 it gives us a good glimpse into what the opposition to the kingdom of God often looks like. What the opposition to the kingdom of God, what the opposition to the people of God, meaning you, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, what, it, what that opposition looks like. But then also, the flip side of that is what, what obedience ought to look like. What obedience in the midst of that opposition ought to look like in us. And so as we walk back through this story of Daniel in the lion's den, I want us to see three pictures in it. I, and I'm just going to take them one by one instead of telling you all up front. Three pictures that I believe are, are sort of given to us that we need to see. And, uh, and the first picture is this, a picture of opposition. We see that in the beginning of the story, a picture of opposition. So let's just get our bearings. If you look back at chapter 5, at the very last verse of chapter 5, um, we read, or the last two verses, we read about the last Babylonian king, Belshazzar. He was killed in verse 31 of chapter 5, a, a, uh, the coming to power of a new king, Darius. Of the, he was the, Darius the Mede. The Medes and the Persians were now the power, not the Babylonians. Darius was their king, verse 31 of chapter 5. 
tells us that he was about 62 years old. So as we begin chapter 6, the first couple of verses describe uh, how Darius began to set up his new government. And he began to delegate authority. So verse 1 says he appointed 120 satraps. Satraps were like governors, mayors or governors over particular areas, territories of the kingdom. 120 governors, as it were, satraps to govern certain sections of territory. And then verse 2 tells us that over them, over those 120 satraps, Darius appointed three presidents. Three presidents. The presidents were in charge of the satraps. But were obviously, those presidents were still obviously subject to the king. And those three presidents, aside from the king, those three presidents were the most powerful men in the kingdom. Besides the king himself. And Daniel was chosen to be one of those three presidents. Now let's just think for a second. Because I, I, I really like to think realistically about these stories. And I sometimes put myself in the, in the story. But by this time, Daniel was probably between 70 and 80 years old. Think about it. If Daniel had come to Babylon in subjugation as a 10, 11, 12, 13-year-old and had lived all the way through uh, the 40-something year reign of Nebuchadnezzar and then kings after him all the way through the end of the Babylonian Empire, now he's still living into the the Medes and Persian Empire, uh, he's an old man. (laughs) He's between 70 and 80. God had shown favor to him. We've seen it in chapter. God had shown favor to him again and again and again, so much so that when a new kingdom, a new ruler comes into place, it didn't take long for Darius to realize there's something different about Daniel. There's something special about him. He's, he's, he's worthy and he's trustworthy, and he put him in a high position. He was a godly man of integrity. So he's made one of those three presidents. But not only that, God continued to show favor to him in this chapter. In addition to him being placed to, to one of these three presidents, look what it says in verse 3. Verse 3 tells us, Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents. So even among the three He distinguished himself and all the satraps. Why? Because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So God's favor was on Daniel. And when it says that there was an excellent spirit in him, I take it from what has been said in previous chapters, that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. That he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And and think about it this way. At At 70 or 80 years old, he was still seeking to walk faithfully and obediently, as faithfully and as obediently as he could before the Lord. More on that in a a minute, though. What I want to highlight here, because this is a picture of opposition, I want to try to get a glimpse of the kind of opposition that he faced in this episode, even from that high position as, as president. So we've noticed that God's favor was clearly on Daniel at this point, but it's important to keep in mind though, as we'll see in this story, that just just because you're in God's favor doesn't mean you're in everybody's favor. In fact, when you're in God's favor, 
you're going to be out of the favor of a great many people if you're living faithfully in the world. All right, we see, we see that here. So God's favor was on, on Daniel. And as he was progressing up the ranks of authority, the, the, the other two presidents didn't like Daniel. They didn't like who he was. They didn't like who he worshipped. And they really didn't like the fact that he was distinguishing himself above, above them. And Daniel, and it said in verse 3 uh, that, that Darius was about to set him over the whole kingdom. They didn't like that. So what did they try to do? How did they try to oppose him and fight back? Well, the first thing they did was to try to attack his character. They tried to attack his character. Look at verse 4. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could not find a ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. They looked for some way to expose him for something. They looked for some kind of character flaw. They tried to uncover some sin, past or, or present, that he was trying to, to cover up. And they looked and they looked and they looked and they didn't find anything. Nothing is new under the sun. Politics is still the same way today. I mean, it, it feels like we're always in presidential campaign mode, but even, especially when like presidential campaigns are in, are in full bloom, it feels like you, you see one candidate like making really good headway and then, just about the time he's about to run away with it, some news story, some bombshell drops, and like, that guy's never heard from again. Just that, that digging up some past sin just destroyed that guy's, uh, his, his candidacy, his livelihood. Candidates are always trying to find dirt on other candidates, and, and, it, and, and the thing about it is, they usually do. You can usually dig up something, Right? But they tried to do the same to Daniel, but he lived such a life of integrity and such a life of faithful uprightness that they could not find anything that would stick. That alone is an indictment against me. And that, that alone is a, is, a, is a challenge to me that I would strive to live that kind of life of integrity, that kind of life of of. of humility and obedience and, and, and faithfulness that if someone tried to find something on me, they would have to look really, really hard and hopefully not find something, right? That's what, that's what the Scriptures mean, for example, when it calls pastors and church leaders to be above reproach. First, that's what 1 Timothy 3 says. I, first of all, I urge that, that, that overseers be above reproach. And then that long list husband of one wife, and all this kind of stuff, all that long list are just explaining what it looks like to be above reproach. That is what is incumbent upon me or any other pastor in this church or any other pastor anywhere. That's what's obligatory to us, that we live lives that are above reproach. But that's not just for pastors and church leaders. Why? Because why are we called to be above reproach? Why are we called to live lives that way? Why? To be an example to you so that you live a life that way. It trickles down. They couldn't find anything to stick to Daniel. So what did they do next? Look at verse 5. And these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law 
of his God. And we learn as we keep reading in this story that what they meant by this is let's, let's manufacture a conflict between the law of his God and the law of the land. That's, that's how we're going to do this thing. Let's, let's create a conflict between the law of the land and the law of his God. Old trick. Still present. Still present. Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 8 that Satan roams around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, 11 that we don't need to be outwitted by Satan. Right? And be ignorant of his schemes or designs. And one of his schemes, one of his darts, one of Satan's uh, schemes... It, always used by the people of God is to manufacture conflict between the law of God and the law of the land. Right? But between the law of God and the law of the land. We see that here in Daniel 6. We see it in the book of Acts. Remember? When Peter and John had to tell the authorities, we must obey God rather than men. Why did they have to say something like that? Because men were telling them to do one thing and God was telling them to do another. There's a conflict there. They were put into a position where those two things were conflict and, and conflict, and they had to choose. It's, it's one method that Satan constantly uses against Christians. Make it hard for them to choose to obey God. Make it hard. Make them have consequences for choosing to obey God. And if, there are, if the consequences are unpleasant enough... Maybe they will grow weary in obeying God, and maybe they will not obey God. Maybe they'll give up. And they wanted more than that for Daniel. They wanted to get rid of him altogether, and so they decided to get the law changed in their favor, favor but not in his. Notice very carefully how they got it done. Look at what they go and tell the king in verses 6 and 7. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king... And said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Do you notice anything odd about that statement? Do you notice anything maybe not completely on the up and up? Sure. They said that every one of them were in agreement about this thing. It says, all, verse 7, all the presidents of the kingdom. All the presidents? That's insinuating that Daniel's standing there in agreement with this. Right? Well, he wasn't. They lied. They, they did whatever it took to get the, the law changed and to get what they wanted. And Darius was just flattered enough by this thing. Don't pray to anybody else but me, really. Yeah, for 30 days, I'll take that. He was just flattered enough that it didn't dawn on him that Daniel wasn't in the room. That Daniel might not be in agreement with this. Now that he signed it, it's irreversible. And any found, anybody found in in conflict with it, would be thrown into the lion pit and the entrance seal with a stone. So that is, that is one kind of opposition 
that Daniel faced, like seriously malicious, conniving, scheming on people to, uh, to, stumble, to stu- get him to stumble, ultimately to get him killed, right? Um, creating a conflict between the law of the land and the law of his God and make it hard for him to obey, really active against him opposition. That's one kind. But in what we just read, in the part of the story that we've just come through, right in the verses just immediately after this, there's one more kind of opposition that Daniel faced. In addition to the, the active opposition of the other presidents and the satraps. So this skipping ahead in the story just a little bit, when they forced, remember they forced uh, uh, Darius' hand, they told told Darius, hey, we we caught Daniel praying. Caught him praying three times a day. They they forced Darius to keep his law that he signed. You remember, it's, it's the law of the land. It cannot be changed. You must throw Daniel into the, the lion's pit like you said. Did you, did you pick up when we were reading the story that Darius loved Daniel? That Darius respected Daniel? And did you, did you pick up like he didn't want to throw him in the lion's den? Like he didn't want to, and he was in utter turmoil to it. Remember he said he went to bed that night, and then he fasted, and then... At first thing in the morning, he came running to the lion's den and lamented out loud, Daniel, are you, are you still alive? Has your God delivered you? He didn't want to do it. He knew it was wrong to throw Daniel into the lion's den. Some, point being this. Some opposition is hostile. Some opposition that you face, some hardship that you face, it's because people are hostile. Right, But other opposition isn't hostile. It's just cowardly and afraid to stand for what is right. Darius was cowardly. Darius was afraid to do what he knew what was right. He, w- he had been deceived. He had been hoodwinked. He, he didn't notice that Daniel wasn't in the room when he made that law. If Daniel had been in the room... Daniel probably would have spoken against it, and it probably wouldn't have been a law. Right? He knew what the right thing to do was, but he was too cowardly to do what he knew was right. And who did that spill over onto? Daniel. He's now in a den of lions. When you you step back and look at this whole scene, that's what opposition in, in real life often looks like. It will look for ways to attack your character. It will force you to make hard choices to obey God rather than men. And sometimes you'll be put in a hard situation just because somebody else was too cowardly to do the right thing. That's the situation that Daniel found himself in. But this wasn't the first time. He's almost 80 years old now. He's been dealing with this for over half a century. So he's not phased by it. And when, you, when, we, when we look at him in this story, what do we see? We see a picture of obedience. We've seen a picture of opposition. In Daniel, we see a picture of obedience. We see Daniel's, when we see Daniel's response to this, what do we find him doing? Praying. He wasn't, I mean, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego back in chapter 3, 
what we noted about them, when they wouldn't bow down to the golden statue, remember we said they didn't make a big deal out of it, they just didn't? We see the same thing in Daniel in chapter 6. He wasn't marching in protest, he wasn't picketing, he wasn't making a scene, he was just quietly trying to be faithful, trying to do what was right. So he didn't go to the town square and say, you can't tell me I can't pray. You know, he just went to his room and prayed. And look at verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He didn't just go to his closet, straight up went to the window. And he got down on his knees three times a day, and he prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. That was his immediate response. Notice it says, when he knew that the document had been signed, off he went. But it also says, he did this, the last phrase there, as he had done previously. So he was just carrying on again today what he had, had been his practice every day. It says that he, did, he, he, uh, he, he prayed three times a day. By the way, that was just a... Three times a day was an Old Testament Jewish practice that was carried over into the New Testament as well. The apostles were Jews who had come to faith in Christ, and they carried on a practice of praying at certain hours of the day three times a day. But it said, it specifically said he had windows open toward Jerusalem. Why, why, why point that out? Why, why did he go to the window that was facing Jerusalem to pray? Well, I know Muslims bow toward Mecca. Right? It was not the same reason. There's nothing, they're commanded to. There's nothing in the Old Testament law that commands us to pray toward Jerusalem. Never has been anything that said anything like that. So why did he do that? Why did he specifically pray toward Jerusalem? I simply think it was to remind him of God's presence. Right? And, and to remind himself of God's covenant promises to be faithful to his people while he's in exile. He wanted to remember God's presence and his, his promises to him when he prayed. For us, that would be like praying with your Bible open, you know? Um, reading God's promises as you pray. As you prayed three times a day, that was just a practice to help, us, help them pray more constantly. And it says he gave thanks before his God. He wasn't wringing his hands. He knew that the Lord would take care of him, so he gave thanks, and that should be our posture too confident, trusting that God and the king, trusting God that the kingdoms of this world and their laws come and go, but his kingdom and his word is forever and he'll take care of his people. And it says he did all this as he had done previously. Daniel was faithful in prayer. Even as an older man, he realized more than ever how much he needed the Lord's grace and provision and strength. God had been faithful to him. But he didn't presume upon that grace. He still sought it in prayer. I want to point something out to you, though, that adds another layer to this, this whole thing. I want you to notice something specific about the kind of temptation that came to him here. Um, you already know what the punishment would be if you violated this law. You get thrown into a, a den of lions, okay? Just put yourself in that one, all right? That would be enough to scare most normal sane people. 
I don't really want to be thrown to the lions. You know? I take Daniel was normal and sane. And so I'm sure that there was some measure of trepidation here already. Fear can be a big temptation to compromise. But notice one thing in particular that was mentioned two times in this story. When those people asked, when the satraps and the other two presidents asked Darius to make this injunction against prayer, they did not ask for it to be a perpetual, forever injunction. They only asked that it would be a command for 30 days. Did you notice that? It says that in verse 7, and it says it again, for, again in verse 12. For 30 days, just for 30 days, just for one month. You can imagine that that added another layer to the temptation. You know, we're fallen sinful people. Uh, he wasn't being commanded not to ever pray again. He was just being asked never not to pray for 30 days, just for one month. I think it's a question worth asking ourselves, myself too. Like, if it would make one lick of difference in our lives if we didn't pray for 30 days. Would it alter, if we were commanded not to pray for one month, would it alter our schedule in the least? Surely Daniel had, it was tempted to justify it in his mind that he just wouldn't pray for just this one month, right? But it, it, it didn't do that. It says the moment he heard about the law, he went to his house and prayed. There was no hesitation, no compromise. It wasn't arrogance. It was just quiet confidence in God and faithfulness to Him above everything else. So just, that's the picture of, of obedience in Daniel. I want to see one more picture real quickly because we got to and we're out of time almost. And that is here, a picture. I can't change it. A picture of Jesus picture of Jesus. Several times in the, in the gospel, um, in the gospels, in the New Testament, Jesus said something really interesting. He said everything in the Old Testament was pointing forward to him. Um, he, remember he talked with the two guys on the road to Emmaus at the end of Luke, uh, in Luke 24 after his resurrection. And there in verse 27, he said, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, that would include Daniel, the things concerning himself. So Daniel's not about Daniel, Daniel's about Jesus. So Jesus is foretold and foreshadowed in all these Old Testament events. And we see pictures of him in the Old Testament before he ever comes to the scene in the New. And we see it here in Daniel 6. We don't have time to dwell on what Daniel was doing in that, this lion's den or who the angel was. Let's just see how we see Jesus pointed to in this story. What we see to a lesser degree in Daniel, we see to a greater degree in Jesus. It's always a lesser to a greater. All right? To the greatest degree in Jesus. So 
For example, we see Daniel walking with tremendous integrity and faithfulness all his life. But he was still a sinner. Jesus lived a completely sinless life in faithfulness. Hebrews 4.15 says he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. In verse 4 of Daniel 6, they were looking for ways to accuse Daniel, but they couldn't find anything. They did the same thing to Jesus. Matthew 26, 59 and 60. They were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might, find, that might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. I love that. That many false witnesses, they couldn't even make up accusations that were believable. So Jesus was so upright and sinless. But looking at Daniel again, he had to stand before a cowardly ruler in Darius who handed down an undeserved punishment to satisfy a mob. Sound familiar? Jesus would do the same thing more than 600 years later. Daniel was thrown in a tomb of sorts to bear the punishment that man conceived, but that God had decreed. Jesus was placed in a tomb in the same way. But God sent an angel to Daniel's side, to shut the, the, the lion's mouths, but there was no angel there for Jesus. You notice that? Angel came to help Daniel. No angel was there to help Jesus in that tomb. Why? Because in that moment, God had turned his back on him in some mysterious way. Why? So that he will never turn his back on us. Just as Daniel came out of that tomb alive, Jesus came out of the tomb alive forevermore. And so we don't put our hope in Daniel. We, don't put our hope in, we put our hope in the one that Daniel's life points forward to. Just as Daniel's salvation from the lion's den eventually meant, at the end of the story, the deaths of all those who had opposed him in a very cruel way, their children, their wives, there are consequences also for those who do not come to Jesus. This passage, like every passage, is meant to drive us to Jesus as our greatest treasure, our greatest confidence. But also, as we follow Christ, Daniel does give us a good example of how to be faithful through the opposition.